Music critic Cecil Gray would have us listen closely to the prelude and fugue in G minor from Book One of the Well-Tempered Clavier as an example of J.S. Bach's unique power of weaving exquisite melodic arabesques, which, in addition to the sheer formal perfection, are deeply imbued with expressive significance. Again, Cecil Gray wants us to take note of Bach's power of weaving phrases, phrases that are perfect in form, yet filled with beauty of expression. We'll remember Gray's use of the word weaving and his reference to Bach's structural rightness. What's fascinating is how much Bach is aware of and what he can do with even the most fundamental of materials. Here, folk materials. Jane Jaffe of Parliament's Chamber Concerts asks us to shift to the Goldberg variations and to pay attention to the very end of this whole work. She points out that Variation 30 shows Bach having some fun in the form of a quod libet, literally, as you like it. The term had been used since the mid-14th century to designate a humorous piece that combined two or more independent melodies, often folk tunes, in contrapuntal style. The Bach family reportedly improvised such pieces at family gatherings. Meanwhile, scholars, she says, have found at least six snippets in Variation 30 that appear to be folk quotations, of which the most obvious are phrases from Ich bin so lang, I've been away from you so long, and Kraut und Rüben, cabbage and turnips, have driven me away. Bach's witty combination of these phrases seems to refer to this hodgepodge, another meaning of Kraut und Rüben, having driven the main theme away and necessitating the recall of the aria, even without any knowledge of quotations or elegant witticisms on our part, however, Variation 30's old-fashioned demeanor has the musical effect of halting the intensifying brilliance built up by the preceding variations, preparing for the da-da aria's return to bring the work full circle. And that's the mark of a master. Remember Cecil Gray's praise for Bach's skillful weaving and for his deftness with the structure of musical forms, to the point that he even draws on the folk tradition and makes it his own? We're about to meet a professional fiber artist, a weaver, and a teacher who is a master of her art. 
someone who tells us she is fascinated with the way yarns and other filaments can be manipulated to tell a story or fulfill a function, interlaced, threaded, interlooped, twisted, twined, beaten. In the fiber arts, these are known as hand weaving, tapestry, stitchery, knitting, crochet, fringing, sprang, netting, felting, and so on. Since all these processes are available to me, says Peg McDade, depending on function, I convert a wide range of fibers into large custom wall pieces, floor pieces, and upholstery textiles for institutions and residences, or into smaller artworks as one only, scarves, vests, suits, and coats. Her credo, know the function, select the method, and add the personal vision. Peg McDade is a rostered artist in the Arts and Education program of the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts. She has taught fiber arts and other arts courses in the graduate and undergraduate programs of Keystone College, Luzerne County Community College, and Marywood University. She also teaches fiber arts to special needs adults at Artworks Gallery in Scranton, and she offers fiber art classes in her own studios. Peg McDade has also become an artist as part of the Folk and Traditional Arts Partnership involving the Everhart Museum in Scranton and the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts. The project is intended to sustain cultural and artistic practices rooted in the histories, traditions, and everyday lives of people in Lackawanna, Luzerne, Pike, Susquehanna, Wayne, and Wyoming counties. On the second Sunday of each month, one of the rostered artists in the project is featured, and this Sunday, September 12th at 2 o'clock, there will be an online program with Peg McDade at the Everhart Museum in Scranton, speaking about her inspirations, her teachers, and her work, all set in the studio where she works and teaches. We had a chance to speak by phone with Peg McDade about her work and how someone who is so clearly a fine artist can embrace the phrase folk artist as well. I would say that the interest in folk art would be part of the history of fiber arts itself. I don't think you just wander into it by some sort of a project and then call yourself that you're a fiber artist. I, I think you have to know where you came from and on whom you are dependent. And I feel very dependent on those folk artists in the Paleolithic age who decided that you could get a plant like hemp and spin it with another strand, and now you have yarn. Of course, it was crispy, but it was the first, and so I'm thankful for them. And then skipping through history, when we get into this country, then so many of our weaving structures are from our colonial people. And we are also dependent on the Ethiopian gentlemen who did the weaving in the Southern Hemisphere. And all, all of these things, it's just all part of me. I'm always thankful for them, all of those people. Were there grandmas, we think about women, but were there relatives in your family who were interested in the fiber arts in any form? Uh, my grandmother uh, used to embroider in silk. And my auntie, Auntie Mame, 
was a fantastic seamstress. And I remember everybody else, all the other kids would be out playing, and I would be standing hour after hour alongside of her pedal sewing machine and watch her, say, put lace on ruching and watch her make the ruching and... I I just was fascinated by all those motions, and then I probably was going to end up wearing whatever she was making. I love the term ruching. Remind people what that is. It is a way of gathering, putting one stitch after maybe a quarter of an inch away from a quarter of an inch away from a quarter of an inch away on material, and then pulling those strands on the underside together. What it does is it gathers up all the textile. It's usually a, quite a light, lightweight textile. It could be a chiffon or even a lace-like thing. And it makes this beautiful, soft padding that's usually at the top uh, shoulders of dresses or collars or something like that. Have you been someone then who wore these clothes, watched them being made, and at what point did you then venture into the learning of any of these techniques? Well, uh, I think I didn't have a choice in a certain way. My father enrolled his three daughters in singer sewing lessons, and both of my sisters took the first course and were not seen again, and I continued to take two other courses. The second one was in tailoring, and the third one was in home techniques, like making curtains and that sort of thing, drapery. So then I I know that right after that, I started making my own clothes. Were there examples, places to go, like the Everhart Museum, where they might have some examples of some of those ancient tapestries or works from earlier cultures? in their collections. How did you get to see those? Uh, there was there were some special exhibitions. And whenever there was anything at the Everhart that did feature textiles, I always made sure I got there. I remember some years ago, the entire back rooms, smaller galleries were full of textiles, older textiles. It was not contemporary. What was your first experience with a loom? I always knew that I was going to weave, and I went to an estate sale, which was down the street from my house, and I went up into this huge attic, and there was a floor loom. And I thought, well, I'm buying that one. I didn't know anything about looms. And then there were three other lap looms and uh, smaller looms. I gave those away to the schools. And I kept the other one, and I took it apart, put it in my station wagon, we called it then, and took it home, and it was all sticks. You have to put them together again. So I put it up in the attic, and I said, I'll get to you, honey. So I did. I grabbed a bedroom that wasn't being used and set it up there, and I essentially taught myself how to set up a loom, and then after I set up that loom, I made sure I got to other teachers, which were uh, all around the country, the people who wrote the books that I had read, contemporary people. And then I would meet with them and go to convergences across the fiber arts, and then I was able to speak to the people and, you know, tidy up my act and learn some tricks about how to save time and set up a loom better. 
you have a real color sense as well. You seem to love color and you find ways to bring colors together that we might not expect together. I think you're born with that, Erica. There's no describing how that happens. It's just, I think, all artists that are visual artists and that work in some medium with color, they know it. I mean, I'm talking about successful, real artists. They just know it internally in their heart, what color would spark up another or what color would kill another. And they, they don't even have to experiment. They just know. And you are someone who teaches and cares very much about passing the art, the tradition, along. You wouldn't have to be. You could just continue to do your own work. What inspires you as a teacher? Well, I think that if there's a skill that others may be interested in, I feel not obligated. I am delighted to pass it on, and people can accept the way I look at things, or they can reject it. It makes no difference to me. But as a teacher, I think you have to have that kind of an attitude because you don't know all of the requirements of of the students, anybody that's... And I'm talking about students of all ages because I've taught from kindergarten all the way through senior centers, and you can see it in people. They've got it or they don't have it. And... I I don't try to impose on them. I always say, how do you want to do it? How do you want to do it? And some people don't like that because, well, it causes them to have to think and plan. Others say, well, here's how I want to do it. Go ahead, try it. Also, Peg, we know about the utilitarian needs in human cultures the sense that we need clothing and we need things to hold pots so we don't burn our hands, all those basic things. Are there moments when you are creating a specific tailored jacket or you're making a mural that you feel somehow like you're inspired in a moment by something you've experienced before or maybe just channeling some of those wonderful weavers in the past? Uh, I think there's Two answers to that. As far as channeling, there are many books that you can look at as far as the many structures that there are in weaving. Most people know, you know, the sheet that you use in your bed is is plain weave, and they know a couple of twills. But there are many, many other structures in weaving. They call them a structure. So you're in the twill structure. And uh, there's some wonderful names to to these things. Crackle is a variant on a twill structure. And Collingwood, which is um, Peter Collingwood, came up with a way of making rugs. And they are a variant on just good old-fashioned plain weave. And then there are other structures. They might be called summer and winter. And on one side, it's dark. And on the other side, there's more light. And so these were very old. They were terms that were used in our colonial era in the 17th century. So people keep those. They use them. I feel like I'm, you know, cavorting with the people of the era whenever I'm doing it. But but for me, I don't want to copy what's in the book. I can't. It's not part of my psyche. I have to contemporize everything. And I have to I have to change the expected colors 
I have to. I can't do two of anything. And you have taken your weaving off the ground, and you have tapestries that are hanging from ceilings and so forth. So you've been able to take your concept and keep it small, but you've also been able to conceive a work on a massive scale that's going to be viewed from the ground. It's the architect in me, uh, the architect and the engineer. I remember now what was implied in your question before is functionality. If if you have to make something, and it's going to be a textile, whether lightweight or heavy or thick, then how is it going to function? Is it going to function on your body? And if so, what would be the type of yarns that you would use in order to make something, say, a, a vest? Well, that might be a little lighter than something you would do in a winter coat. Is it going to function on the floor? Well, all of this is utility, by the way. It's going to function on the floor, so we have to have it so that people are going to walk on it, so that they're not going to slide around and slip and fall. And it also has to be tough. So you would pick, uh, if it's going to be wools, you don't use the wool that we'd use in a sweater. You use the kind of wool that you would put that's pickier and tougher, and that is there's actual rug wools for all of that. Is it going to function on the wall? How is it going to function? Well, is it going to be a tapestry that's uh, relatively two-dimensional? Well, there's magnificent tapestry yarns. I have only, only the best and about 400 colors of that so that I can, you know, shade and pastel as as I wish when I'm doing something that might be a tapestry. But is it going to function on the wall and in an auditorium someplace? Well, that's different. We have to design the frame. We have to design the installation, how it's going to be put in right from the very beginning. And you do that when you're designing a coat. You know how it's going to be installed on the body, and you have to work from that ultimate utilitarian concept. So we have the floor, the wall, the body, and any any other function that you can think of, you always start with, you could say it's going to function on a table. Well, it's not going to be as thick as a rug, is it? You're not going to have perhaps big, long, shaggy thing on your table, but you might want to have something that's quite light and definitely it's going to get dirty. It has to be washable. So these are all the things that go through your mind even before you start. That's part of the design, the planning phase It's part of the administration in a way. You have to secure all those materials. You have to find them from various suppliers. You keep them in inventory for a while, and you use them. And, of course, any of the leftovers you put back on the shelf because you'll think about those again in the future. Do you still have hand looms, Peg, and do you use them at all? The hand looms, yes. We use those constantly for, it's called needle weaving, where you're going to not use a machine to help you. And one of them, I call it the very noble loom, is made out of cardboard. And we use them all the time, especially with special needs people. They love it, and we've used it at senior centers. They can take them home, work on them at home, bring them back. So, yeah, and I also have... uh, a vertical tapestry loom, which is, think of a picture frame, and you would put your warp on that. 
and then you're actually doing a lot of finger work. And you can use shuttles, too, if you wish. But actually, it's a lot more working with your fingers to put colors, your yarn colors, into a vertical tapestry. Can people see your work? Well, they can see right now what's going on on the Everhart website. They can go to the folk art and uh, look at it. And that will be the second Sunday coming up this September, second Sunday. So I'm the September folk artist. People can tour the uh, studio if they wish. They just have to give me a call and that kind of thing. You're still offering classes even though it might be COVID time? How are you teaching? Well, there were three places that I was teaching in the community that shut down. At no point did we shut down in the studio. I spoke uh, directly to each of my students and we talked about it. They all uh, are vaccinated. They are all extremely vigilant as far as mask wearing. And at the time that this happened, each of the looms that the people were working on were in different rooms here and, and the work table in another room. So everybody was able to do their work all by themselves. So they come different days too. So that all worked out miraculously. And the only person they had to deal with, it was me. So, yes, and of course, I'm vaccinated too. Peg McDade, professional fiber artist who designs and produces art textiles for one-only clothing, and that includes vests, scarves, suits, and coats. She designs and produces fiber artworks for home, office, commercial, and institutional sites. She teaches at the graduate and undergraduate levels at regional colleges and universities. And as we just heard, she teaches private studio classes in weaving, knitting, crochet, embroidery, pattern making, hand and machine sewing. Peg McDade has become an artist in the Folk and Traditional Arts Partnership involving the Everhart Museum in Scranton and the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts. And on the second Sunday of each month, one of the rostered artists in the program is featured. And this Sunday, September 12th, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, there will be an online program with Peg McDade, speaking about her inspirations, her teachers, and her work. And the setting is the studio where she teaches and where she does her own work. For more information on the web, Everhart hyphen museum dot org e-v-e-r-h-a-r-t hyphen museum dot org and if you'd like to explore with Peg McDade the possibility of classes you may reach her by email Peg McDade at gmail.com, P-E-G-M-C-D-A-D-E at gmail.com.